Let's start with this. It doesn't matter if you ever plan on doing anything with bicycles. The lessons in this episode apply to any business and they are pure gold. There's a reason Carl Strong is a legend in the bike industry. He's been running a successful, profitable business for more than 20 years. He leads seminars, coaches younger builders, and most importantly, runs his business as a real business, not a passion play. That's a mistake so many entrepreneurs make. If you want to build a real company that's highly profitable and capable of growing, you need to focus on the bottom line. Carl boils down two decades of business advice into our interview, and my favorite parts deal with why you cannot assign your own financial values to that of your customers, and how to manage your bottom line to ensure profitability. It's all here. Enjoy the ride. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. We're sitting here in the home of Carl Strong, who's a fairly legendary frame, but custom handmade frame builder in the bike industry, uh, along with uh, his wife and his new business partner, Bill, on a new venture that we'll talk about a little bit further into the episode. But I'm letting you guys all introduce yourselves so people know whose voice is whose. Yep. Hi, I'm Carl. Loretta. This is Bill. Right on. So I want to start with kind of the, the history of strong frames and how you got into it you know like what was your background prior to starting a bike brand and what did you do and how'd you get into building frames sure um my professional background was kind of mixed i did quite a few different things but when i started building frames i was a uh computer guy in a chain of sporting goods stores putting in a network of computers to manage inventory for the sporting good chain um but my personal life had always revolved around bicycles from, I, from before my, I can recall. And um, so I'd been racing BMX as a kid and switched into um, road bikes and ultimately mountain bikes when they started to become popular. And um, when I was in college and couldn't afford a good bike, uh, I had, uh, you know, had a lot of great shop classes throughout the years in school, junior high and high school, and sort of knew the basic operations, so made a bike and um, raced it, and kind of everything just sort of grew from there. So you knew how to weld from the classes? Yeah, barely, but you know, I could get the job done. So I mean, I guess the main thing is I wasn't afraid to try. You know, I had enough tools in the toolbox so to speak, that I wasn't intimidated by the idea of trying to build a frame. And how old were you when you did that? Uh, 25, 26. What year was this? Uh, 92, 93. Okay, and so how long did it take to go, or what was the progression from building a frame for yourself to 
launching Frank Company? Like, did you ever think it would turn into a business or? Yeah, I kind of pretty immediately thought, you know, I'd like to make a business out of this, which is probably the opposite of what everybody will tell you these days, including myself if I was giving somebody advice. But I um, hung a shingle out prematurely and, but this was before the internet, so you couldn't do, you know, we weren't reaching out like we are now with the internet. Um, but I started selling to friends for cost of materials and um, slowly but surely got better. The demand grew. I raised my prices um, bit by bit over time. And then eventually uh, it turned into more of a job. And then slowly I shifted my emphasis from my real job to frame building. And there was sort of an interim period where I'd quit my real job and got a part-time job welding aluminum camper trailer frames together because it was sort of a flexible job and allowed me to run my frame business. Cool. And was that here in Bozeman? Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Did, were you born here or grew up here? Grew up in Seattle. Okay. Yeah. But my family's from Bozeman. I came to Bozeman to um, go to college and then I've just never left. All right. And, uh, I can see why it's beautiful here. Yeah, and, and actually, I want to talk a little bit about the area later on. The uh, so, how many, how long did it take from the time you made the first frame to, for yourself to starting to make frames for friends? Uh, immediately. Oh. I mean, I finished my frame, and I had a line of you know all my racer buddies wanted a frame. So, was this a road bike frame then, or? Yeah. Well, the first yeah, the first one was a road bike. Second one was a mountain bike, but. You know, I, I raced both of them equally as 50-50, sort of. And this was during, you know, the heyday of Norba racing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just built whatever anybody wanted. I wasn't really, um, I hadn't found a niche or a specialty yet. I hadn't even discovered what method I wanted to use. I was building lugged frames and filled brazed frames, but mostly TIG welded. And you've, correct me if I'm wrong, but over the past few years, you've really kind of morphed to, you're, you're kind of just doing titanium mostly anymore, right? Yeah, but not consciously. It's just happened. You know, I think that titanium is seeing a really big renaissance right now, um, primarily because of the gravel road bike um, craze, and it's a perfect material for it. You know, it's just robust, dent resistant, doesn't corrode. So I think a lot of people have really nice high-end road bikes and they don't want to beat them up. So they figure I'll get a second bike for training on and why don't, while I'm at it, I make it fit bigger tires so I can go explore a little. And so that's kind of sort of been the focus of most of my work lately. And um, as a result, most of it's titanium. Okay, so um, it's, it's from consumer demand. It's not just right. as a I haven't made the preference. Choice. Okay. Yeah. And then I think there's a certain amount of self-fulfilling prophecy, too, because pretty soon everything you see on my website is titanium, and then consumers come to me because that's what they're searching for. So I think what happens is you um, you start to go down a road, and it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, they just assume if that's all they're seeing on your website, they just assume that's all you do. Because yeah. you used to do steel as well. Oh, yeah, I was known for steel. And, and even, didn't you have some carbon? Or like blended tubes, like a carbon steel tube? Or I did carbon, carbon tie. steel, tie, stainless, combinations of it, all carbon tube to tube. Back when aluminum was the big material in the um, Pro Tour, I was doing aluminum. So I've pretty much done every material. Okay. Yeah. And I want to talk about like as a frame builder. So you've been doing it for a long time, but you, here at Bozeman you've got some folks like Adam Sklar who are really young, only been doing it for a very short amount of time. So you, based on your experience, because 
kind of the goal of this podcast is to show people like, all right, here's how people have done it. And, and things have obviously changed from 20 something years ago when you got started to today. So speaking in like today's terms and, and with today's resources available to you, like if you were starting out, what, what would make somebody or, or what kind of justifications should somebody use to start building custom frames? Because there's a lot of custom frame builders out there. There is, yeah. And differentiating yourself is hard. And most people differentiate themselves through their product. But there's more ways to differentiate yourself than just your product. So one of the first things people need to learn is what is it about them as a person that would resonate with the potential customer? And understanding that so that you can focus your efforts on highlighting the, that element or those properties or whatever it is, rather than just trying to go out and make a curly or curly cue or a you know this that or the other thing. Um, that you know is, that's kind of the trick. It took me a long time to discover it, and you have to listen to your your people. You have to kind of recognize when people come to you what it is they came to you for because you can market yourself based on what you think you have to offer and find out that what people are responding to is entirely different. All right. So what is it what makes a strong frame special or unique? For me what my what my distinguishing characteristic is is my my custom design process. It's very intensive, it's very collaborative, it's very interactive. It's very educational. It's a lot of fun. It covers a long period of time. So prior to a person receiving their bike, there's a big relationship that we have together and we have a common goal of designing their dream bike. And they enjoy that. And that is as valuable to them as the actual bike is to them. What is that? So phone interviews? or Yeah, it's usually a series of phone interviews because I do um, nearly all my sales are remote. So they're by phone and email. And we typically will have weekly conversations that we set out of, there's a roadmap of what we're gonna do and we just sort of start at the beginning and incrementally work through the process. What kinds of things are you asking them? Cause that seems like if you're talking to somebody every week for, I don't know, what months? Months. Before you start actually building the bike. I yeah. mean, I, I have good friends that I don't even talk to that much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Believe me, I spend a lot of time on the phone. And what and the reason that we can talk so much is because we they participate in every single choice. So, you know, we start with the frame fit, for example. Okay, what's the frame fit? The frame fit is the relationship between the bottom bracket, the saddle, and the handlebars. You have your bottom bracket, you have your saddle height, you have your saddle setback, you have your reach to your bar, your drop to your bar. So we're going to talk about all those things independently and we're going to get their fit profile. And then we're going to start talking about usage and we're going to figure out where do we want to put that fit profile between the wheels to get the proper weight distribution. And then what geometry do we want to connect all those points with? And then we're going to talk about tubes and we're going to talk about every single individual brazon and where it goes and what type of brazon it is. Um, parts every single little part that goes on the bike so they're participating in every single choice I don't start with the bike you know the Carl Strong signature and we're going to tailor this to you by tweaking it I mean I start with nothing um, but a basic idea which is their goals so essentially what I've always told people is that their bike exists in some form somewhere in their head um, in the form of goals and priorities. And so it's my job 
to help them define those goals and priorities, put those in the proper hierarchy, and then design the bike to meet that, that hierarchy of needs because at the top level, there should be no compromise. But as you move down through your, through your priorities, you're going to be forced to make more and more compromise as you go down the list. And then at the lower part of the list, I can help them sort of dial the needle between the two opposing uh, objectives to the balance that'll best suit them. Right. And so there'll be a series of conversations with the first one or two, maybe being a half hour to an hour, then a bunch of 10, 15 minute conversations, a bunch of little emails going back and forth in between. And it just, the day they ordered, the whole process starts. So they get to stay engaged from the beginning. They're not gonna just send me a bunch of money and then wait, you know, and hope I call them someday. And it's also gonna keep me engaged with them so I know who this customer is. I don't have to re-remember them. Oh, who is this guy that you know ordered his bike four weeks ago and what is it he wanted? Because I know him there at the top of my mind. Yeah. Well, and, and all of that's really, it's, it's an art and a skill into itself is helping people figure out what they want or knowing, being able to translate what they're saying into what they really want. Because a lot of people, you know, like, I mean, I've got a custom bike from Alchemy and I wish I had listened more to Matt than I did. Mm-hmm. And he kind of did what I wanted. Um, and his ideas were probably better. Like, it's a fantastic bike, but it definitely could have been better if I hadn't been such a control freak about it. And, um, <laughs> you know, but Matt's so soft spoken and so nice, and I love him to death. I, I wish he would have said, Tyler, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's definitely a good skill to have and can certainly set you apart so and that brings up a good point too which is in this whole process i have to protect the customer from themselves so you learn how to extract information from them without asking them the question you want the answer to then that way they don't give you the answer that they had ready (laughs) yeah or that they you know and so you're you're going to actually get the real answer and then and ideally what happens then is they don't feel um, anxious because they're afraid they're going to give you the wrong information because you don't ask them for information directly. It keeps the anxiety level down, confidence level up. All right. um, we do the same with measurements. We have a bunch of flag measurements. So when people take them wrong, which they do very frequently, we can know it and then we can guide them towards the correct measurements. Yeah, so speaking of measurements, the the geometry of a custom bike is, a lot of people, especially if they're buying tie, this is a lifetime frame in in most people's minds, mine anyway. Mm -hmm. How do you, how have you figured out what geometry works for what and all this stuff? Because it's obviously a skill that's honed over years and years. So when somebody's starting out, you know, like where are they getting their geometries from and how do they develop that? Yeah, you know what I did when I first started out is um, I would use, you know I, I knew what the benchmark standard geometries were for a bike and then I thought to myself okay you know everybody's riding 73 71 mountain bikes right now what would happen if I ran a 73 head angle or a 69 head angle and I'd build the bike and I'd ride it and find out but ultimately over time builders develop a data set. So I have a data set of thousands of customers. So, you know, as I got more and more experienced, my, um, I, I got more in tune to what people meant when they said things. I was better at um, sort of translating what they were saying. 
I had a little bit more um, b uh, better idea of all the subtle relationships between the different elements of a bike because you can't really look at any one part of a bike independently and after a while you get used to thinking about the bike as a whole and when you imagine changing one thing you sort of you may not be able to nail it down to the millimeter but you sort of understand all the other changes that are going to occur with that and the effects that they'll have in general and so everything's just kind of a fuzzy little blob <laughs> and then you're trying to kind of get this ellipse in there somewhere and then that ellipse needs to have a little range of adjustability for fine tuning maybe you're dealing with a customer that's 50 years old and they're going to be 60 in 10 years We'll make sure that bike is going to fit that 60-year-old version of them and work well for them. So you might start with the bike at its most aggressive positioning and then build in, you know, more and more conservative fitting. You might have somebody that's more middle-aged and maybe will race and maybe won't. And so then you might hit the center of the range because they might want to lower their bars or put a longer stem on for racing. Right. <clears throat> so lots of topics I want to talk about so we'll just start with like the revenue side of it because you know with the amount of time that you have invested in it I mean time is money and that's one of the things I've noticed when we talk to all the handmade builders is that they, there's a certain amount of frames they can build per year and then they start getting a wait list and I know some of the more popular builders have wait lists that are years long and so I mean, real quick like what's the current wait list for a strong frame about five months five six months okay so how do you how do you figure out pricing? You don't have to share numbers you don't want to, but like, you know, maybe like what percent are materials costs versus everything else? Mm -hmm. So basically I try never to drop below a 70% gross profit margin on a, a frame. Um, gross, what are the hard costs? Like what is in that 30%? Just, it's just tubes and, tubes like and welding material and gas, right? Yeah. So, and then if it's a metal bike or a steel bike is painted, Mm -hmm. okay. And then shipping to the painter and back. Right. Yeah, so that's all hard costs that could be related directly to an individual unit. And then things like argon, sandpaper, sanding media, tungsten, all of the consumables, I dump those all into a shop supply expense. Okay. Which is like 2 or 3% of gross revenue. And so how long does it take you to from start to finish a bike and that includes like all the time that you spend with the customer the hours making it so basically and, and loretta's hours because i was going to pl yeah. plug her in separate so basically a titanium frame on average uh the frame itself takes me about eight hours to make uh typically i spend about eight hours with the customer loretta spends three to four hours on finishing and packing and then I have another hour or so into ordering parts and then three to four hours uh, and then, assembling the bike and then build builds all our wheels. And then I do about an hour and a half, two hours in the studio. Oh, yeah, we have bike. the studios. Yeah, So I yeah. would say, you know, we, we build a bike a week, eats up all 40 hours. We build two bikes a week. Well, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Depends on what kind of bike it is. Right. If he's building steel, he can build a lot faster. Yeah, steel we can do two or three. Yeah. And it also depends on what kind of competing things are going on yeah. outside the shop. Right. <laughs> and then it also depends on assembly. Like some of the assemble assemblies like will go together really good and some customers kind of choose their own part kits and all the little pieces that we put together for them and we have to kind of make it work and 
sometimes you have to troubleshoot stuff because not everything is made to fit perfectly with every other brand. So that's where the mechanical skills come in right. with Carl. Cool. Yeah. So let's still talking about the, the handmade and the custom business. What are some of the challenges that you guys face as a custom builder? Right now, supply chain. Really? Yeah, Shimano can't deliver to save their life. Um, so it's not the tubes that you make the frames with, it's the parts that go on it. The tubes I, are fairly easy to get. The, the parts, especially from Shimano, are very difficult to get. You know, Shimano quit using distributors. There was a time when we could go to one distributor, make one phone call, order one box, and everything we needed was in it. Now we have to go to every single distributor separately, and some of them are really, really good. Envy's great. Stands, no tubes is great. Um, but Shimano King is really good. King Shimano though is really, really having a hard time um, anticipating what they need to have in stock, so they're always behind. Um, so that's a big challenge. Um, and do you steer customers? Toward SRAM or Campagnolo, then? No, I feel like it, but you know, Shimano's, in my opinion, making the best stuff. And then with our customers, everyone wants the highest end, too. So they're waiting for, you know, they'll maybe have to wait for something that's not even released yet. And that's where a lot of problem comes in is, you know, Shimano will estimate a ship date and then it'll change 10 times, you know, before you get it, which. Customers get really excited, and it's not something um, they can control. So once they think their bike is going to be there, it's like it's like taking a kid out of a candy store without giving them five cents. It's yeah. like, or telling them Christmas is not coming until March. Sorry. Right, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 I mean, it's not anything against them because they're excited about their bikes. It's just you get it in your head, you're going to get it, and then it's like time just ticks so slow. Right. And then the other thing is painters. You know, they've been the bane of the frame builder's existence since the beginning of frame builders. I love my painter, and I won't say who he is because I don't want him to get any more customers. <laughs> 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 and he gives me a hard time about that, too, because he yeah. does. Another thing is uh, uh, part of getting frames delivered and all that is just being a one-man show. It's, I think it's hard managing your time, and if you're not a really good organi organized time manager, it can get really difficult managing all the, the little elements, all the way from the interviews down to the frame building, to the parts ordering, to getting it shipped, and the right shipping address. And so it's really a lot of time <clears throat> management, too. Yeah, well, how do you do that? Because, like you mentioned earlier, you know, Carl has the office from, you know, 6.30 until 9, and then you get it for the rest while he's out building. Like, so you guys have a system, but how how do you create that system, or what sort of scheduling, whatever, do you use? I have a, I have a system that I developed when we were doing a lot of bikes, you know, hundreds of bikes a year, and now, it, you know, just as a result of needing to manage all those bikes having slowed my volume down my I have this system I probably have never developed otherwise and so it's pretty if I stick to the system it's pretty easy to manage the customers it requires logging every phone call organizing all the email um, I have a series I have a physical and a digital file and I have the physical file so I can carry it around the shop but there's a 
series of slots that it progresses through as it goes through the process. I have a um, special web app that I had my web developer make that's got a form in it. Almost all of the questions have drop down boxes so I know what my choices are. I don't forget to fill in anything. Um, I have the customer sign off on all that. It's, it's a big five page document with a ton of detail. And then um, we do like every Monday morning we do a meeting. And then every morning we do a five minute meeting and we go over our calendar and what's pending and what's at paint and when things are on order and when things are gonna ship. And that way throughout the week, if anything changes, we can just kind of stop for five minutes and redo our schedule. So, and that way we can let our customers know that part is back ordered. So then they're not waiting and we can kind of go with the flow. Right. But if we didn't have our regular meetings, it gets it gets pretty crazy. Yeah, and sometimes we miss them, and you can sort of tell it gets a little bit chaotic. <laughs> Bill gets mad when he misses a meeting because he shows up and we are all pissy at each other. <laughs> he has to deal with it. <laughs> so it sounds a lot you know, discipline That's and just having word. like a system and a checklist of you yeah. know, here's what everything needs to go through. Regimented, there's lots of rules, you know, and so then you don't have to think about it. And kind of one of my goals is to... I try not to have, ever have to remember anything. I don't have a good memory. And so I've learned a long time ago, just don't, just organize life so you don't have to remember. Right. And then it keeps the brain, that keeps your RAM available. Yeah, it frees up the mental energy for other things. I mean, that's what they say about Steve Jobs. That's why he wore the same thing every day, because yeah. it's just one less decision. And yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, I want to go back to kind of talking about the things that are outside of your control. So like this Shimano supply chain and then um, you know, the thing I remember when SRAM's ETAP, which for the non-bike people listening, it's SRAM came out with a wireless shifting system so that each of the two derailers has its own battery and the shifters have their own battery. So there's no wires connecting any of them, um, which makes, I imagine, frame building pretty easy for mm -hmm. something. And, and installation super easy, but it changes the way the frames are laid out because you don't need cable stops. You don't need internal ports and all that anymore. So how often... No, well, not even so much how often does something like that happen, but when something like that happens, a, a third-party part comes that requires a different way of producing a frame, like how easy is it to adapt and how quickly? Because it always seems like when something new comes out, the handmade show is the where you start seeing it first because right. you guys are way more nimble than like a Trek or a specialized. Yeah, I think that it's pretty frustrating for frame builders right now because things are changing. <laughs> so many new standards. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, you have your boost spacing front and rear. You have, you know, now we have boost offset for cranks. You have your BB30, your T47, your press fit 30, your 386, your blah, 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 blah. I've got a dummy axle collection that's, you know, probably weighs 40 pounds. And, um... You know, so it slows the process down, but, you know, typically it's the customers that say, hey, I really, you know, I've been reading about this boost and that's what I want. So then I call up Don Ferris at Amulet and say, Don, will you send me a boost dummy axle? And he sends me a boost dummy axle and I build the boost bike and then I fumble through the process and then I know it from that point forward. So in a way it's good because it forces us to stay current, to keep our eyes on all of the changes that are occurring. But... The downside of it is, is that you may make some mistakes um, in the learning process, such as, you know, not enough tire clearance, too much tire clearance, no ring clearance. Your customer wants to go from a 32 to a 34 front ring and you didn't put the dimple back far enough or something like that. So that can be frustrating. All right. And it's just happening extraordinarily rapidly right now.
Um, and I think that this is just, you know, a, kind of a little thing we'll probably see an end to soon. I'm hoping so. I keep wondering, like, mm -hmm. what can they possibly think of next? But then they yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I yeah. know. So how do you, how do you, um, or, or do you have a system for, like, thinking ahead of what could change? So when a customer says, like, okay, I'm going to put a 32 chain ring on it, 32 tooth chain ring. Um, do you think, oh, well, they might run a 34, or is it just like you get in the zone, and like, all right, 32, and blah, 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 blah? I try to always build a little bit of adjustability in, but I may be building a bike, and nobody's, you know, we'll just use a chain ring, for example, not necessarily a 32, but maybe nobody's even gone there yet, so there is no 32 to trial fit. You know, so you're saying, I think I'd fit a 32 if I pushed it a little bit further and then the guy then 32s come out two years later and the guy says I can't fit a 32 on it we do see a lot of customers come back for retrofits that want to take something that's older and have us add disc brake mounts or make it accessible for you know wireless and that kind of stuff is I mean, it, it's kind of fun but for them because they have that ability to bring us the product back and modify it and I don't think you could do that if you owned a generic stock But I do, brand. I do try to like look at the future. For example, one of the things I was doing when, the, when the, um, we started to see a lot of tapered steer tubes is I start, people might have picked a fork with an inch and an eighth straight steer, but I would recommend going to a bigger head tube and using a devolution base plate because they may down the road want to change forks and they'd probably be stuck with an inch and a half steer tube. Right. That gave them the flexibility then to just pop a different base plate on and everything would fit perfect. So I try to look forward. If I see changes on the horizon, um, then I try to kind of steer the customer towards that. Like for me, I think all road bikes are gonna have through axles and flat mount brakes and disc brakes. Right. So that's kind of, you know, I think that we're going to see some settling when that finishes occurring, at yeah. least in the road bikes. Uh, it, at this point, it seems inevitable, but you know, two, three years ago, there were still a lot of builders. I'm never going to build a disc brake road bike. That's yeah. stupid. Or they you were know, putting and, post mounts on, and then the post mount vanished on road bikes. You know? Yeah, so just good to think ahead and future proof it. Yeah. Um, I imagine that was the road disc seems to be one that was probably a difficult conversation for a lot of customers to have with some customers because people are kind of. Even still, they are like, yeah. and <laughs> it seems I, like the writing's on the wall, and they're like, nope. And I, I embrace technology when it's good. I also <laughs> have, you know, spent my life riding motorcycles as well, and they're a lot heavier and harder to stop. And um, so for me, like the disc brake just makes perfect sense. Of course, it's not necessary, but right. then neither is ten thousand dollar custom bike. Right. Well, neither is suspension. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But we sure like it. We like gears. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't help it either. Yeah, we keep looking at Bill because he's a little bit of a Luddite. Right. I don't know. You had a new bike today. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't complaining about it, was he? No, not at all. <laughs> so let's shift gears in a little bit. Um, recently, I, I forget when, I, I meant to go back and look because we posted about Pursuit Bikes, which mm -hmm. is your new venture with Bill. Yep. And it is basically a production bike brand as opposed to a custom bike brand. So what was the impetus for creating that? And so the impetus for creating that was wanting to just continue the evolution of being a frame designer, manufacturer, um, 
just continue learning and trying to build, you know, the quote unquote perfect bike. And I wanted to um, pursue the, you know, composite materials because of the properties that they have to offer. I did two to two bikes for years. Um, and um, I wanted to get into uh, the molded bikes um, because there's a lot of things that you can do when you do an intern, you know, a closed mold subassembly. And Bill and I have a friend who's also a partner in our business, Jared um, Nelson, who's got a PhD in composites engineering. He's an assistant professor at SUNY New Paltz right now. And we got him involved in. Uh, with with this type of manufacturing, um, it's completely different than uh, building a custom bike because I'm not selling my services. Like right now as a custom frame builder, I'm selling myself, my time, my services. I'm more in the service business than I am in the manufacturing business. And so this is going to take us more down a manufacturing channel where we have a, three engineers that work for us now that do pretty much everything. And then we'll have techs that do all the actual um, building. And then I'm just going to be running the show. And so it's an opportunity to stretch my legs as a business person, build something that could scale, which custom strong frames can't, and um, just really pursue the uh, epitome of bicycle technology. Right. And we have these great resources available to us. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that the college has a lot of a great program and a lot of interns yep. needing something to do. But I actually want to back up because when you said scale, it reminded me. Um, you kind of like casually mentioned that the volume of strong frames has dropped off in years. So at one time you were doing you know hundreds or a hundred or so frames mm -hmm. per year, which is a lot. Um, why was that a conscious decision to limit the amount you were making, or is it just demand? Well, we found when I started Strong Frames and was growing and I didn't have a business model. I was just basically, you know, build frame, sell frame, sell frame, build frame, build more, sell more, build more, sell more. And I didn't really understand what I was doing. And I was just constantly going out and selling bikes. And um, how that fit into a business model, I didn't ever really consider or think about. And so what would happen is the more... The more we build bikes, the hard you, you know you have to start using bike shops. You have to start offering bike shops a margin. There, it was just so hard to keep a good profit margin, and um, I didn't know what I was doing. I managed it poorly, so we were always struggling. And um, I ultimately got to the point with Loretta's help and actually Dave Kirk's advice. Uh, he said, "Just you know." take the cream off the top, just downsize, just, you know, do the work, sell the people directly, do what you can handle and charge a premium for it. So you were using bike shops as sales agents, basically? Yeah, we were. They would, um, we had a handful of shops that sold a lot of bikes. And then we did a lot of um, private label work also, right. which was even less profitable than bike shops. And then, of course, we're not selling full bikes to any of those people because they could provide their own. Right, and we were doing parts. a lot of frame only. And you don't get paid yeah. right away from a lot of people, so you have to you have more working capital. Hmm. So with the the parts, I imagine you're getting the, like Shimano when you're building a complete bike, you guys are making a little bit, like, assuming you're charging retail for the parts and yep. buying it wholesale, so yeah. it kind of adds to the... Yeah, we charge, we charge less than retail because you're buying it as a bike. 
And you're not really, since we're an OE customer, we can't charge individual prices for the parts. But what we try to do is we try to maintain a blended gross profit margin for the frame, which is one gross profit margin, and the parts, which is another. And so as long as we can keep that blended gross profit margin where it needs to be, we're okay. And so we, ba we, we, we base our, basically we, every bike we, co we cost out like that. Okay. So let's jump back to Pursuit. Um, there's a couple other startup carbons. One's uh, Allied in Arkansas comes to mind. And yep. then LeMond is working on some interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're pumping out frames yet, but Allied, I think, just started sending theirs out and stuff. And they're they're doing some unique things with the carbon technology and the builds and all that. What are you guys doing that's going to make Pursuit special and different? Well, one of the things, probably the main thing that we're going to do that, that makes us special and different is we're going to sort of thread the needle between the really high quality of craft and attention to detail that you'd associate with a custom bike and the technology that you'd associate with the better carbon bikes. We're going to be limited edition. We have to keep our output fairly low so that we can pay attention to each individual unit to produce the quality level. And then as, as a result, the overall product is just going to be a, a very fine product, very unique, <coughs> and very beautiful bike. It's a limited edition as one model and not limited edition several models. So what we're, uh, their goal is to get that you know, get that model to where, with Carl's years of, of, of fine-tuning frame fit, to get exactly what we believe is that perfect road bike, and then build it, and then every year from that point forward, we just do a better job at, at getting it right. As parts change, as the standards change, as material technology changes, all of that, we'll just keep changing from that point forward. Would take us back to a question you asked earlier is we're gonna be doing one model per year, limited edition. Each year I'll have a, th a theme. Um, we're gonna sell them built bikes only, the one of three build kits and either mechanical or electronic. And, um, and direct to consumer. Consumer direct. And um, going back to why would it not be custom or why is it production, I'd just call it non-custom is that we're taking our years of experience and we're developing a bike and saying, okay, this is what we think is the perfect bike. And if people want it, then good. And if they don't, then they can pass and buy something else. But um, ultimately, it's going to, uh, um, you know, sort of be an expression of where we are in our evolution as yeah. bike builders. And then we do have... Uh, resources available um, where we can explore technologies pretty quickly. We can get on to uh, opportunities fast, and um, we're you know yeah that's just it. The, the care that goes into yeah. And when you said limited numbers, it's, it's you're gonna have X amount. You're gonna make what? I, I forget the number you mentioned before, but it's like what, 200 frames? 200. When, when they're yeah. sold, they're sold. Yeah. So why, why come up with that number ahead of time and then only sell that? Why not like open it up for pre-orders and then say you got 500? Why not sell 500? Well, 
frankly, because I don't know if we won't work that hard. To be perfectly honest with you. Plus, a lot of the customers that are going to purchase these bikes really care about that exclusivity. They they really want that. They want it that one year version. It might be an anniversary to them. It might mean something special to them because of the theme. But it, 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 the, a lot of people have expressed that limited edition is really important to them as bicycle collectors. And as you know, a lot of people collect bicycles. So it's good, it's, good point. And we'll also, if we get to that 200 and we're selling through <coughs> annually, we'll talk to the team. We'll see where everybody is, how, you know, how they feel about where the company is going. And, you know, if anything, we'd probably introduce a second model, a different bike, a different type of bike rather than increasing the output. What we do want to keep it limited and exclusive and unique. And we want our we want a business that we can offer employees a really good quality of life. It's Bozeman. I mean they're gonna wanna be outside with their family, hanging out on the trails, having a good time, and we don't want them feeling like they moved here to have a job that all they do is stand next to a sanding machine or an oven, I guess, all day because there won't be many sanders. It is, it is gonna, it's a lifestyle business, you know. So you guys are going to produce the frames here in Bozeman? Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Right? Oh, yeah. How we hard is that shot. to set up a full carbon production facility? Because you need pretty big presses, you know, vacuum. I don't know, are you doing like uh, bladder mold vacuum? No, no, it's going to, they're closed molds. And um, you, you have to, there's two ways you can cure. Right now we're curing in an oven. We have a big industrial oven which is a little on the slow side, but works well. We have good heat control in it. Um, ultimately, as we ramp up, we'll start putting in uh, heated presses. Um, but really, all of our tools are being made at a machine shop. Um, so, I mean, you have your layout table, you have your presses in your oven, you have your tools. And it, there, it, there's not a lot. I mean, most of the costs that w we've incurred so far have been engineering. Lots of engineering. Mm -hmm. Is that um, coming from your third business partner, or are you third pulling business, a lot from well, the college? We, well, we have, no, we have another engineer that doesn't work for us. He's 1099, and um, he's expensive, but he's, he's been, doing, he's been doing all of the design engineering. So our partner does all the modeling optimization, ply uh, design, you know, uh, laminate schedules and stuff like that. And then the kid that we have here that's working as an intern is working more as a process engineer. Um, and so he and I have been working on uh, process controls so that we can, you know, get consistent results and understand what we're doing. So that's things like mapping out the heat in molds and developing cure profiles for each different tool and stuff like that yeah also um our first few years we're not going to build 200 our first run is only 35 and so once we get up to those numbers where platinum presses or and all that are heated presses are going to be making us faster then we'll get those right now we have we're outsourcing the material cutting we're outsourcing paint and we're outsourcing the tool, the machining of the tools. So as we grow, when each one of those things breaks even, whichever one breaks even sooner, we'll bring in. I imagine it's going to be the cutting table will be the first thing we buy. Right. How do you, since you haven't done 
this type of bike construction before because you were doing tube to tube before when you were doing carbon. How do you ensure that it's strong enough? Are you guys just uh, test on a test jig and seeing when they explode? And yeah, so what you do is if initially we develop a database of material characteristics. And so the first thing we do is we build coupons and we send them to Jared. And he a tests. What, a coupon? Yeah, so yeah. basically it's just a little like a square, small square, square laminate. Carbon. And then he does a tensile strength test. He does a, what's called an open hole with digital image correlation test. And he does a three and four point bend test. And he does a burn off test, which tells the ratio of resin and um, fibers. And once we do that, we, we start creating small parts and you do a physical examination of them. Um, met, you know, tap, tap test, measure, you know, measure the walls, make sure you're getting the compaction that you need, check it for finish inside and out. Um, we're building a fatigue fixture to do front end fatigue tests, pedaling fatigue tests, subassembly fatigue tests. And then right after we build the fixture, we're also going to send samples down to Microbach and um, have them test a few samples to make sure that their findings are consistent with our own. Mm-hmm. And then and how much of that is, uh, do you have to pass to be able to sell a frame? So I know with custom frames, there's not really like, you don't have to get like CPSC or EN testing. At our volume yeah. output, not, I mean, we can just sell them. But we, you know, we want them to be safe. The thing about the composites that's so much different than the metal is when you buy a tube of, titanium inch and a half 035 wall grade nine cold work stress relief tube you know exactly what you're getting you know exactly what its characteristics are um, but when you build a carbon bike you're making your raw material also so you have to be very very careful and that's you know why engineering is so expensive because you have to have the people that understand this stuff that have the right tools to um, do these analyses and um, you yeah. know make sure everything's safe. Well, and it, it only takes one broken frame nowadays to ruin you on social media or something. So oh, yeah. you, you've got to do the testing whether it's required or not, really. Yeah, and we and we want to make a high performance bike, which means lightweight. You know, which means that we don't want to pile a bunch of extra material into the frame. So we have to understand exactly what's going on with that frame. One of the things that we're using that sort of unique is digital image correlation, which essentially, um, you know, right now when you want to test a strain on a bike, you put a strain gauge on it, and you know, apply a stress and you measure over the length of that gauge. What digital image correlation does is essentially turns the whole frame into a strain gauge. And that's one of the things that our partner Jared works on. And so we're going to be testing a bunch of prototypes where we'll do a digital image correlation, ride them 500 miles and send them back out and do it again and over and over and over again so that he can get a better understanding of that, exactly what's going on with the bike. And then that kind of closes the loop between the FEA modeling and the real world because right now what people do is they do FEA modeling, they put in a, a safety factor and they make sure the bike doesn't break. But if the bike breaks, it's really hard to understand exactly why. You know it will break or it won't break, but there's a lot of understanding that people don't have in between. And so that's what we want to explore. And is, I forget when we first wrote about this on Biker, but it's probably been six, eight months since mm-hmm. you kind of let us in on it. Mm-hmm. How much longer before the 
you guys start on your first batch? Very soon. I mean, we're working. We've been working on parts on sub-assemblies, and we're just getting tools made and making pieces. And, you know, one of the things that we're doing with this, this is kind of more business-related than biking technology-related. And By the way, I'm not an engineer, so if there's engineers listening, I sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just repeating <laughs> what I'm hearing. But the, um, we're doing a lean startup. And so one of the things that we're exploring is just sort of market feedback. So we've introduced the brand sort of out ahead of being ready to produce bikes. We've been advertising the brand in order to just sort of figure out how to access our market, what people are responding to, maybe help us shape our message, shape our product. Um, so we're just trying to use the data that's available now through modern marketing methods to uh, develop our business plan, test assumptions, and then in the case that we get any of these assumptions wrong, pivot. Right. Well, it probably helps outsourcing everything too because it makes it even easier to pivot. You haven't invested in all this equipment and process. Yeah, and that's, and that, you know, and that's been one of the tough things of wanting to do everything in-house is you know, we have to buy, we have to have tool set made, but we want to make sure that people are responding in a positive manner before we commit to the brand in general and also the product. So up right now we have the, you know, the uh, photorealistic renderings and that gave us a lot of feedback because you can just sort of see how how people respond, what's the, what are the questions they're asking, what are they interested in. What was some of the initial feedback, like and what changes if any of you made from the original plan to the plan after feedback? I don't know that we've had to make a lot of changes yet. We haven't. We have two big assumptions I'd prefer not to share that we're really going to realize um, very soon and those are the kind of the big potential pivots that we're really worried about but what we have done is we've sort of honed in on our demographic um, we're kind of trying to figure out how to get get to them because it's a more fluent person that's less likely to be dinking around on the computer they're we also have, less likely to buy stuff online um, we also <coughs> went from, I mean, we Carl's been working on this idea for just about three years now, and there is a there was a big pivot in that process, and it was probably last fall when I think when we went from going from tube to tube construction to full um, closed mold, closed molds, and I think that transformation, and we designed we decided to design our own dropout, and so I think. Those two things added a little more time than what we were expecting originally as far as our timeline went, but I think it's something that we kind of skipped a phase of that learning process, and so we kind of dropped that and went straight to the mold, you know, closed mold. And Yeah, that's a good point. That would yeah, be a pivot. Yeah, so that would be right. the biggest pivot, I think, since we've started this whole idea so that must have introduced a whole new learning curve then. Mm -hmm. Learn that process from scratch, essentially. I mean, there's a lot of people out there know, but I guess is that why you brought in the um, was it Daryl, the biggest third partner? Or was oh, he Kyle. Part? Kyle. Was Kyle. He's our our intern. He brings some yeah. experience in composites in general, but not about closed mold. Uh, Jared brings experience. He worked at McLean Quality Composites when they had Reynolds, and he worked at Seven. I don't think he had anything to do with composites there, but he's been a He's been in the business forever. So basically, we have our design engineer, Jeff, who's what Cat 1 
roadie, been racing for 30 years. Jared's a cat one, roadie, been racing for 30 years. Bill's been riding and racing for 30 years. Jared's so, wife, Anna, cross racing. Yeah, and she's a... She's been riding a carbon strong cross racing for years. Yeah, and so everybody has yeah. been in the bicycle industry for decades, with the exception of Kyle. Who's only he's just too young. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. been in. He's like Sklar. He's been in long enough to take his diapers off. <laughs> <laughs> Sklar still has his diapers on. Yeah, we, we <laughs> that's for you, Sklar. <laughs> we like to joke with him at the Paul camp that he he needed to be ID'd. He probably shouldn't be drinking. Yeah, that's Sklar, funny. Sklar baby. Yeah. The uh, so you mentioned an interesting thing then about the potential the likely customers being more affluent and but not looking online. Is that, um, how'd you figure that out? Well, they, they, they are online, but they're just, they're not burning up the same amount of time. And um, we just figured that out through, you know, available data. A lot of like Facebook advertising utility has a ton of data. And that was one of the, the main places that I went. Um, the, uh, but it, you know, it, make, it makes us wonder, you know, about the direct consumer direct model you know if if it's going to be f completely possible with these really high-end bikes you know I think we, we might have to figure out ways to get them in front of people so yeah. that's kind of one of the things we're learning right hmm. so what we do is we we advertise on Facebook primarily right now and that's about all the advertising we'll do we'll some we'll probably do some Google AdWords later but and you, you just try to look at what your cost per click is, you know, and you just, so you target these people and you, when you build an audience, you say, okay, this audience is going to be that more affluent, less active audience. And all of a sudden, you know, your, your lead conversion cost skyrockets and then you go, oh. <laughs> you know, so then you start messing with your message and your picture and, you know, the interests that you can plug in and stuff like that. And so we've been doing a lot of that. Huh. And then, is it because this type of customer wants to be catered to in, in a, a retail environment, or like? I think that there's a. I think that yeah. I think that there's a, probably a lot to be said for being the guy that goes in and buys the coolest bike in the bike shop. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's, so there's a lot of uh, ego involved in that, and um, so. I think I think there's that's part of it. I think it's time, you know, people typically that are in a lot of cases that are more affluent have less time or value it more than people that that aren't. Um, so there's a, I think it's going to be you know different than strong frame. It's going to be a completely different customer, and so they, you know they, I have my customers. Sorry, Bill. Go ahead. They definitely want to be catered to. They, that, yeah, that, that's a. Common theme that we're finding, and I think you know, but that's also a benefit of Carl's experience in the custom world. Mm -hmm. We know he is catering to, cater. to his customers. He's taking better care of them than than most people, and you know, I mean, with a few exceptions in the bike business, there's not very many shops that can really deal with the level of customer that is going to be buying a pursuit. I mean, there's some, but they're, I bet we could throw out five or six names and we'd all agree on them. Yeah, you know? and, and we may approach those people um, and try to develop a relationship with them. We have a handful of shops 
that I think we'd like to, you know, to talk to. But we just kind of have to see how it goes. I think our first run, which is small, is going to probably be consumed by strong frames customers. Yeah. And then the next batch after that's going to be where we start to really. Um, we have an average of about thirty-five percent a year return customers. Hmm. So, and we don't advertise a lot. So most of our customers are organic, word of mouth. Um, you know, I heard through a friend. I saw your bike at a race. I've heard about you for years, and so we're hoping that with that initial batch and our customers that we currently have, they reach out to the people they know are the customer that Pursuit is offering the product to. And we have several Strong Frames customers that over the years have said, I wish you'd do this. If you did this, I would buy this bike from you so fast. And and so now we have that to offer them, but not under the Strong brand. Yeah. Well, it kind of brings up an interesting point because I feel like there's a lot of people that are perfectly content to go into a bike shop and buy, you know, like a production bike, Trek, Giant, Specialized, you know, you name it, whatever. Any of the brands that are sitting on the floor on any given day. And those bikes have escalated in price if you want the high ends, you know, easily six grand, some of them pushing 10, 12. And yet you can buy a custom bike, you know, completely fitted out, completely dialed just for you, even carbon from some people for six, seven or less. And I wonder, is that a challenge for you guys, almost back to the strong frames and not pursuit to convince people like, hey, this isn't just for rich people. You know, a custom frame isn't just for people with, you know, a lot of disposable income. You know, how do you pull regular people in? Because I look at what I've paid for bikes in the past. I'm like, you know, had I known better, (laughs) I could have gone and gotten full custom for the same price. Right. And with the strong brand, you know, Probably 10% of my customers really need a custom-fitted bike. Um, what they're really after is they're after something that's unique that sort of reflects their character um, or their personality, something that is the combination of things that they want, the combination being the combination of fit, function, material, color, and parts, those things. they don't you know, have to go buy a bike that has all but one and settle for having one of those things not be what they want. So it gives them the power to have that combination of elements that they want and have something that's unique. And the fit, while we do fit them, it, you know, they can fit on a stock bike. So, I mean, those are, those are the benefits to the, to the customer and they're willing to pay. We're busy, 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 busy. And there's, you know, no end in sight. We have more business than we need. What does a road or cyclocross frame cost custom strong? Typically, if it's assembled, it's out the door for between eight and 10, eight and 11. I shipped two mountain bikes last year to a couple. They were $14,600 without shipping. Each or? Mm-hmm. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. I was like, and so you have to put in your own head that you're not your own customer also. You can't attach your monetary value to your product because the people who buy excessively in custom bikes and in um, sporting goods or anything um, don't necessarily buy it because they need it. They buy it because they want it. It means something to them. Just 
I mean, they buy $2,700 bottles of wine for a fancy dinner. It's nothing to them. And so you can't really attach all that to your own value system because it's a product that we're offering them at the highest end we can offer. And that's the point is to offer that highest end and nothing in between. So we're, I mean, and and not everyone needs that bike, but there are people out there that really want it. No, that's a great point. I mean, I struggle with that for my own business is charging enough for advertising. And we're having to like figure out how to raise our rates or charge more. And I, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's tough when your value system is way different because I'm extremely frugal and, you know, right. there's a lot of people, like you said, that aren't. Mm-hmm. But we we learned a lot of that if it, when we owned a bike shop and we had employees and it they would attach their monetary to customers and we had the Strong Frames customers coming in wanting envy parts and all of this stuff and they would freak out because to them that's so much money for parts and and we had to convince our staff that that's it's not it that's you can't look at it that way it, you just have to look at it in a total different way but you also have to give value there has to be value you know and the value doesn't have to be the lightest stiffest frame the value could be the most finely crafted frame the frame that every single piece of material is laid down perfectly or the value is we're using materials that they can't even sell overseas that you know are unique to U.S. manufacturers. And right about here is where my recorder cut off and I learned the limitations of a two gigabyte memory card. So we did reset it and we continued the conversation but it was actually a great place for us to pause for a second and kind of reinforce what Carl and Loretta were just talking about. I make the mistake of assuming my customers have the same value systems as me all the time. So I don't charge enough for the ads on Bike Rumor. I typically undervalue my time and my efforts and my products. Um, What they're saying is extremely important. You have to look at who your customer is and price your products and your services based on their value system, not your own. And it goes just as well for making sure that your employees aren't underselling your higher end products just because they personally would not pay for them. So on that note, something to think about and let's dive right back in. One of the things I wanted to talk about was advice Carl has because he teaches entrepreneur classes and seminars at Handmade Bike Show about how to run a successful business. And the dogs are out so you're here and there. Colors. Um, but before we get to that, one of the funny things we talked about at lunch was the phone calls that you have with other builders because it's a, a, a kind of a solo operation, even though it's Laura also. Right. Guys, it's building frames is a pretty solitary thing, you know, yeah. if, if you're doing it as a custom frame builder. And so tell us about the phone calls you have with some of the other builders. Oh, Loretta calls them love. They're, they're full-on love festivals, I call them, because they're complete bromances. We, uh, yeah, we, there's, I have a handful of my, my bike building buddies I talk to pretty regularly, and the calls can get pretty lengthy. But, you know, when you work by yourself, like you said, and you're just alone, it's always nice to have something to break up the day. But then also with the frame builders, uh, we can just, you know, we have unique jobs. You don't find people that have the same issues that, that, <laughs> that, that other people do. And so it's just nice to be able to talk to a person that deals with the same challenges you do. And we can 
sit and chat. Mike DeSalvo is probably my favorite. Every every June we get on the phone and commiserate about June being the worst month in frame building because everybody wants their bike yesterday. Yeah, summer. It's riding season. Everybody's ready to go, chomping at the bits. Yeah. yeah. And then so while I was emptying some space off the card, you mentioned a, a funny anecdote about ruining a frame at the last minute. Oh yeah, I almost, I almost got fired. <laughs> which, Carl's gonna kill me. Yeah, so that made me think. It's like you guys work together, you live together, husband and wife. Like, what? How does that work out? How do you make that work? How do you separate work life from home life? Or do you I even try? I don't know if it we, if it does work. I out. don't know. <laughs> you know, and I think in it. If it would have started working from home, I don't know how it would have worked out. But in the past, when we had retail locations, it's when you close the door and you shut the shop at the end of the day, it's the end of the day there. And um, and I grew up on a farm, and every everyone who was related worked there. And so you kind of learn how to work with other people that you have to spend your intimate life with. And so, um, I think, you know, but Carl never turns his brain off as far as work goes. So some nights he'll be in the shower and he'll want me to come in and he'll start talking about something at work and then he'll ask if I'm taking notes. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't have a notepad here, you know? So it's Carl's brain. Our dogs are getting frisky. Um, You know, Carl's brain never really turns it off. But I think when you, as far as arguing and work things like that goes, it's, it's work and you can't let that affect your personal life it would drive i mean it it would be just the same if you worked away from home and you had a bad day and you brought it home to your wife it's just not fair right but i do love to tell him how my um, boss is an asshole (laughs) (laughs) you're allowed to say that (laughs) yeah i don't know if that's okay to say (laughs) so and then the last thing i want to close on was the advice that you have for other builders because it was it's really good Okay, yeah. Um, we uh, we were talking about the, the this implied business model that we're just in, at least in this country in the U.S. where I think we're inundated with this idea of how you run a business, how you want to build a business, grow a business, scale a business, do things in production runs and batches and that type of thing, and. Um, my advice is to take a good, hard look at the business model you employ when you're a frame builder. Keep it really simple because the easiest way to make money in this business is the simplest way to make money. And you got to pay attention to the bottom line and not the top line. Don't worry about gross sales. Don't worry about the number of bikes that you're going to sell as much as you worry about how much money is passing through at the end of the day. So how much you're making per frame as opposed to yeah, how much per, you're making total. Per hour. Per hour, because it really breaks down a per hour in the shop, you know. And then you need to sell enough bikes at a high enough profit margin that you can earn a living at it. And that's the big challenge for newer builders is it's hard to get full value for your frames and it's hard to sell enough frames to um, create enough revenue to ultimately make a living it's also easy for new builders to get to disguise um profits or or hide them by doing friends favors like building bikes for cost and ordering parts in and they i don't think that the the value on the time it takes to place the orders and check them in and give them to your friends is given to that person and so when you give away your time for free you're not 
you're not doing your business justice by making that time valuable. Right. Well, it's like Dave Kirk said. He, his goal of his business is to build one bike a year and sell it for a million dollars. But the kind of the business model I go after is I want to sell 50 bikes on average, $10,000 a bike in a year. That's $500,000 worth of gross sales. And then you want to have 50 plus percent gross profit margin. So after you buy your cost of materials, you're at 250000 And then keep your overhead below 15%. And then you're making good money. Right on. Now the trick is doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's easier said than done. It's good on paper, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Bill Holland's done it for years. <laughs> years and years. There's lots of frame builders who've done a really good job at it for a long time. Yeah. It's fun to be one of them, or getting up to be one of them. Awesome. Well, yeah. congratulations on the success, and looking forward to seeing where Pursuit goes. Yeah, you'll be among the first to hear about it when we have bikes to start the prototype might be a little small for you yeah they always are <laughs> yeah. awesome thank you guys so much for your time yeah, yeah thank you it's fun what a great point to close on you've got to pay attention to your total operational costs and your time once you know what it really costs you to produce your goods or services, you can determine your price and stick to it. Then, consider the type of customer you need in order to sell it at that price. Figuring this out ahead of time helps you focus your marketing efforts, branding, and overall pricing structure to ensure profitability without worrying about who can afford it or if you should be discounting. And if your friends want a discount or a hookup, you'll have to stick to your guns. My brother co-owns a restaurant, but we pay full price when we eat there. So do all of his friends, cousins, and acquaintances, and he's doing quite well. But those dynamics could change if he had to pay his staff and vendors full price, but kept giving away the food. Make sure you're not losing the house by passing up margins or giving your time away. I jotted down a ton of ideas from this episode, and it's all recapped in the blog post with full show notes. Check it out at thebuildcycle.com for those and photos of Carl's workshop, bikes, and more. As always, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review and rating. That really helps me grow and keep getting better and better guests and new topics. I'm working on a few twists that explore key strategies for today's world. Look for those to pop up this fall. And if you're following me on social media, hint, I'm at The Build Cycle on all three, let me know what you want to hear more of. Until next time, keep building.